Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Last month, India and Pakistan were involved in their most tense standoff in decades. Driving the drama in India was the Hindu nationalism preached and practiced by Prime Minister Narendra Modi. That sectarian outlook will surely influence April's general election. And tens of thousands of refugees from North Korea want to send money back to their impoverished families. But that is against the law. So there's an intricate and dangerous network of conspirators to get money into the country. But first... Last summer, Donald Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, was put on trial related to charges stemming from Robert Mueller's investigation into the president. So he was convicted last August of eight financial crimes in Virginia. And those charges include conspiracy, money laundering, failing to report foreign bank accounts. John Fasman is our Washington correspondent. So initially, Paul Manafort got a plea deal from the special counsel from Robert Mueller's office. But that plea deal was revoked because he was found to have lied to the FBI after he made it. And he was found to have attempted to contact witnesses. And so that was revoked and Manafort has remained in jail pending sentencing. He was in jail leading up to his trial, and he has been jailed since. Mr. Manafort was the first and so far the only person to be convicted as part of the special counsel's investigation. Today in Virginia, he'll be sentenced for his criminal wrongdoing. Mr. Mueller's team is recommending a sentence between 19 and a half and 24 and a half years for the 69-year-old. Well, at stake is basically his freedom for the rest of his life. I mean, he could end up in jail for 20-some years. For a man of his age and health, that's effectively a death sentence. Now, he also faces sentencing in a separate case in Washington, D.C. So he opted, he had a risky trial strategy. He opted not to consolidate the charges against him. And it was a gamble that he, that he lost. He's been found guilty twice and he will be sentenced twice. It marks a stunning fall from grace for a wealthy man who once wielded outsized influence in Washington and beyond. He is a very flamboyant character. He likes money and the trappings of money in a way that sort of wasn't done in the Washington when he arrived. He got his start in politics, advising first Gerald Ford and then running Ronald Reagan's Southern strategy for Ronald Reagan's 1980 campaign. With a deep awareness of the responsibility conferred by your trust, I accept your nomination for the presidency of the United States. And then after that, he opened a lobbying shop with Roger Stone and Charlie Black and did some political consulting, um, but also did a bunch of lobbying, especially for overseas clients. So how did he sort of move from being a, uh, a lobbyist abroad to, to end up working for Mr. Trump? Well, he worked for a number of 
sort of unsavory foreign dictators. He worked for Marcos, he worked for Mobutu, he worked for Jonas Savimbi. And then he started turning his attention toward former Soviet states. He established a connection with a Russian aluminum magnate named Oleg Deripaska, and that connected him to Viktor Yanukovych, who is a pro-Russian Ukrainian politician, who he advised for a number of years in the early 21st century. Now, Yanukovych became president in 2010, but then lost power and fled in the Ukrainian revolution in 2014. No one has deposed me. I was forced to leave Ukraine. And that led to Manafort's sort of cash drying up. So after that happened, two years after that happened, he began looking back toward America and he volunteered for Donald Trump's campaign in 2016. And I think one of the things that appealed most to Donald Trump is that, is that Manafort offered to work for free. Uh, it was an outsider campaign and today at uh, around 7.30, Mr. Trump will be officially the nominee of the Republican Party. So we're excited about that. He's excited about the fact that uh, his quest will finally come to an end. And all of you who doubted that he could be nominated will no longer be able to say, yes, but maybe it won't happen. It will have happened. And so did, did he work his, his magic then? Did he, how, how, did he, how did he get on as, as campaign manager? So he was actually only there for a fairly short period of time. I think that Steve Bannon, Ivanka, and, and, and Jared Kushner were all nervous about just the extent of his ties to Russia. And so he was shown the door, I think, in August 2016. So when did it all start to go wrong for him? So investigators began looking at him shortly after Yanukovych fled. And this is in 2014, so well before the 2016 election. But he has also caught investigators' eyes since then for a number of reasons. Number one, these straight lobbying activities. And he also got caught up in Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian influence in, in the 2016 election. So as Robert Mueller sort of caught up with him, what, what else has come out? What, what have we learned about him? Well, we learned that he had a very lavish lifestyle funded by money that he effectively laundered. Among the things that he was charged with and found guilty of was laundering around $30 million. Now, there is nothing inherently illegal about paying whoever you want to pay with your money in foreign accounts, but there is something illegal about doing that with money that you tried to hide and not pay taxes on, and that's what he was found guilty of doing. Uh, you may have heard that the jury reached a verdict on only eight of the 18 counts. Mr. Manafort is disappointed of not getting acquittals all the way through or a complete hung jury on all counts. He is evaluating all of his options at this point. Thank you, everyone. But none of this actually touches on, again, the sort of central mission of, of Mr. Mueller. Do you, do you think uh, we, we see kind of anything bigger about the, the Mueller investigation in seeing all this stuff spill out about Mr. Manafort? Well, I'm not sure that that's true. Remember that Robert Mueller was charged with two things. He was charged with investigating any links between Russia and members of Donald Trump's 2016 campaign, but he was also charged with investigating any matters that, any matters that arose from that, and this is certainly a matter that arose from that. Um, what he has uncovered is that Donald Trump's former campaign chair was passing information on to someone widely believed to be an agent of Russian intelligence, and that is shocking. Now, just because it doesn't meet the maximalist definition of collusion that would be most favorable to Donald Trump and his allies, which is Vladimir Putin calling Mr. Trump and saying, 
hey, Donald, let's collude, and Donald saying, okay, let's collude, just because that doesn't happen doesn't mean that it's not shocking. And we should not lose sight of how shocking it is just because it does not meet that definition. And how has President Trump reacted to to all this as all of this has come spilling out? Well, Trump has sort of kept a distance, but it's been a respectful distance. Um, You know, he has repeatedly beaten up his former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, for being what he calls a rat, for testifying against him, for speaking out against him. Manafort has been very tight-lipped, and that seems to have earned some respect from the president. And the other person, people knew that he represented various countries, but I don't think he represented Russia. That's Mr. Manafort, who's, by the way, who's, by the way, a respected man. He's a respected man. And he said that he has absolutely nothing to do and never has with Russia. And he said that very And so what we see here is the extraordinary spectacle of a president slamming someone who has cooperated with federal investigators and praising someone who has opposed them. That also is extraordinary. What's what's your read on what Robert Mueller thinks of, of Mr. Manafort? Well, Mueller makes it pretty clear in the memo that he filed on Tuesday, on March 5th, He says that Paul Manafort has blamed everybody but himself for what he did, that Manafort's professions of having accepted responsibility are effectively false. He has not been terribly helpful at all, Mr. Mueller says, toward the special counsel's investigation. And so he really sees Manafort as someone who has tried to minimize and spin his own responsibility rather than accepting it as Michael Cohen has done. And so the upshot of all that is he's quite likely to have the book thrown at him. It looks like it, up to 24 years. Right, John, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, MoneyWise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out. 's past couple of weeks have been absolutely pivotal for Narendra Modi, India's prime minister. He has had to handle the biggest flare-up in tensions between India and Pakistan in decades. Edward McBride is our Asia editor. That comes against the backdrop of an election campaign which is heating up. India goes to the polls in April and he's campaigning for a second term as prime minister. And now the whole question of foreign relations and in particular relations with Pakistan have come to dominate the election campaign and prompt questions about about who Narendra Modi really is and what he stands for. Last month, a Pakistan-based terrorist group mounted an attack on Indian-administered Kashmir. 40 Indian soldiers were killed. India has been repeatedly urging Pakistan to take action against the Jaish e Mohammed. Pakistan has taken no concrete action to dismantle the infrastructure of terrorism on its soil. The two nuclear-armed rivals launched tit-for-tat airstrikes, and Pakistan captured an Indian pilot. Around the world, there was fear of a disastrous miscalculation. But then, last week, Pakistan handed back the captured pilot. 
The return of the pilot does seem to have been absolutely pivotal in calming the situation. Since then, although India still is expressing grievances, they're being pursued diplomatically, largely in the Security Council. And in the meantime, both countries have gone into something of a sort of post-mortem, looking at exactly what occurred during the bombings on either side and what this says about Mr. Modi in particular. Well, what have we learned then about Mr. Modi and his leadership? Well, the fear at a moment like this, especially with a leader like Mr. Modi, he's from uh, the Bhartiya Janta Party, that's a Hindu nationalist party, India's biggest party, is that he'll try and seize on an episode like this to prove that he's a real tough guy. And there was a bit of that, obviously, but Mr. Modi also held back and didn't allow things to go too far, thank goodness. The worry with Mr. Modi will always be whether an episode like this gets out of hand. And that's obviously especially a concern during an election campaign. You know, Mr. Modi will want to really try and and sort of play the nationalist card, be the tough guy, suck it to Pakistan, India's historic enemy. This election, voters will also be comparing Mr. Modi's performance as prime minister with the expectations they had for him at the time of the last campaign. Mr. Modi swept to power in a landslide victory in 2014. But he was both wildly popular and polarizing. When Mr. Modi became prime minister, there was a huge debate about what he really stood for. He claimed, presented himself as an economic modernizer who would bring reform and prosperity to the legions of young and underemployed Indians. And that was a very powerful message. But there were lots of people who said, no, no, this is all just a fig leaf. What he really is is a Hindu nationalist rabble-rouser who's going to stir tensions between Hindus and Muslims among India's different communities and potentially sort of bring the country to its knees through this kind of divisive politics. And so how have those two views fared then? How has he done on those two scores? Well, on the economic side, he hasn't really lived up to his billing, disappointed many people. A year ago, if you'd asked what Mr. Modi's chances of re-election were, you would have been told 99%. Uh, He seemed like an absolute shoe-in. But a few things have since tarnished his record and have made the campaign much closer. So most notably, the economy. Although the economy, the headline figures, still look good, growth of about 7% a year, unemployment seems to be quite high by Indian standards, 6% according to the latest survey. And farmers, small tradesmen, you know, people in the lower rungs of the economy in particular feel that the economy hasn't been working for them. And that seems to have certainly affected the ruling party's performance in recent state elections and seems likely to dent its standing, other things being equal, in in the national elections. And what about the fears over Mr. Modi's Hindu nationalists strategy? So a bit like this flare-up with Pakistan, Mr. Modi hasn't fulfilled the worst fears, the the grimmest predictions of how he might behave as prime minister in terms of a pro-Hindu, divisive kind of communal agenda. But that theme has been present. There have been very clearly sort of Hindu nationalist elements to his government. Hindu nationalism is the guiding ideology of India's ruling party, the Bhartiya Janta Party, or BJP. The Hindu nationalist movement has a long history in India, but Mr. Modi's election thrust it to center stage. Hindu nationalism has its roots in 1920s when there were some Hindus who were fascinated by the emerging European ideas of fascism and Nazism. Salil Tripathi is the author of Offense, the Hindu Case, a book that charts the rise of Hindu nationalism. I think the way Hindu nationalists would describe themselves is that India is a Hindu nation 
and the nationalism of India has to be basically Hindu way of life and Hindu way of governance, which is poorly defined because Hinduism is not a religion with one book and one God and one place of worship. So it's very hard to say what does it mean. But what it means is that Hindus are dominant and they will set the rules. So to a degree, Hindu nationalism has had its its influence on Indian politics in, in its way for some time. How does that influence play out today since the BJP came to power? What has happened is that there has been far less tolerance of the minorities. If you are from the minority community, they are made to feel that they have been given a privilege to live in India, not that it's their right to live in India. The current government has pushed some policies that represent pretty naked identity politics. And one of those, for example, is promoting the protection of the cow, which is seen as sacred by many Hindus. Max Rodenbeck is our South Asia bureau chief based in New Delhi. And there have been groups that have taken these laws into their own hands. And individuals have been targeted and murdered by mobs of people who accuse them of slaughtering cows. The government policy isn't to encourage that, but the government has been rather slow to condemn that kind of practice. Another effect has been some state governments in India have pretty strongly pushed towards changing place names. India, for hundreds of years, was largely ruled by Muslim dynasties, different dynasties. So the names of a lot of cities and towns are actually Muslim names. So we've had a wholesale changeover of place names. This has been happening slowly over time, but in the last year or so, has accelerated pretty radically. So actually, a very large town like Allahabad in Uttar Pradesh state, the name was changed to Prayagraj last year, just like that, with a single decision from the government. And so when nationalism in India is specifically Hindu, what kind of effect does that have on Indian society? Well, it creates a kind of opposition between two visions of India. You know, is India basically a kind of all-embracing secular country, a kind of melting pot, more in the sort of American model, a big democracy, sort of big tent that pulls in everyone? Or is India primarily a Hindu nation? There's a kind of an ideological opposition there. Which way do you see India? What is your, your vision of India? So, Edward, you said that everyone's worst fears about Mr. Modi's Hindu nationalist agenda hadn't been realized over the time that he's been in power. If he does win April's elections, do you do you expect that we will see more of that? He will push that agenda more? I think the fear is that the balance between sort of Modi the reformer and Modi the Hindu nationalist will tilt more in the direction of Hindu nationalism if Mr. Modi has a second term. The reason for that is simple. It's been a harder fought election than the previous one. So he has to fall back on these rallying ideas. He also has the restive cadres who will have helped propel him to power and will expect payback in terms of their priorities, their Hindu nationalist agenda. And then there's also the problem of the of the weaker economy. You know, if he can't make progress on the economic side, then he has to fall back on the Hindu nationalism. So for all those reasons, I think there's a great fear that that these tensions could become sharper and not dissipate if Mr. Modi's re-elected. Edward, thanks very much. Thank you. North Koreans are among the most isolated people in the world. They're not allowed to leave the country on pain of a stint in a gulag or even death. Information about the outside world is heavily restricted. Yet some people do manage to escape, evading the legions of border guards for a better life in another country. And when they do get out, as is often the case with emigrants, they want to send money back home to help their relatives. 
But that's no easy thing in a state where having a relative flee the country could put you in the gulag too. But some of the refugees' money does get in. Lena Schipper, the Economist's sole bureau chief, has been looking into how. Lena, first of all, how many North Koreans are there outside of North Korea? There's not a clear estimate, but there are about 30,000 North Korean refugees living in South Korea. And then there's a bunch of people who've been sent abroad for work by the state in order to, you know, put money into the party coffers. Right. And, and what kind of contact do they retain with home? Very little. So the North Koreans in South Korea, some of the ones I've spoken to, they, they occasionally talk to their relatives on sort of Chinese SIM cards, but that's all illegal. They're not supposed to talk to anyone outside. The country's meant to be totally closed off. So they're not supposed to phone home, but they do. You've found that they also send money? I mean, North Koreans do all sorts of things that they're not supposed to do because, you know, that's what you end up doing when you're not allowed to do anything. So in uh, South Korea, there's organizations that ask people about this. And one human rights NGO that I talked to um, surveyed a bunch of North Korean refugees last year. And two thirds of them said that they do send money back home. It's not much. It's not large sums. It's about sort of 500 to 2000 dollars a year. But even though it doesn't sound very much to somebody who you know, is in the West, if you remember that North Korean GDP per person is estimated at somewhere between $1,000 and $2,000 a year, actually that is quite a lot of money for a single person to send back to, to a family. So it definitely has an impact in, in North Korea itself. So if I were a North Korean in South Korea and I wanted to get some money to my family, what do I do? So it basically works through a very sophisticated network of brokers because there's a lot of smuggling going on between North Korea and China. So there's always a bunch of people who owe each other money. So what the refugee will do is contact the guy in North Korea who has debts to a Chinese person and says, hey, I'm going to pay $1,000 worth of your debt to this guy in China. And in return, can you give my family the same amount of money? So the money doesn't need to cross the border but everybody gets what they want. Right. Still sounds complex and there's there are middlemen. I mean, is it does it work? Yeah, I, I spoke to one um, North Korean refugee in Seoul who used to do this quite regularly. And she basically says it's a system based on trust. It's expensive. So the brokers take a 30% cut. If you're not very well linked into this network, it's quite likely that people will scam you. But at the same time, because all of this is illegal and everyone's sort of in it together... It's risky to try to scam someone as well because they could report you to the authorities and then you're in real trouble. So by and large, it works. But it sounds like for everyone and at every stage, there's a great deal of risk. I mean, what have people told you about how they feel about this system? The system kind of illustrates the complications of relationships between North Koreans outside of North Korea and North Koreans in North Korea. One person I spoke to, um, her name's Jessie, she's 27, she's a student in Seoul. She actually sent money to her father for two years, and then it turned out that he'd been dead the entire time. Her aunt had lied to her about it and said, your dad's been in an accident, he needs money for medical bills, can you send more money? At some point she got suspicious and found out that um, actually the money had been going to her aunt's family the entire time. You know, pretty pretty terrible things happen with, with this sort of system. But um, people are quite resigned about it, I guess. So Jessie, she said, I didn't know my father was dead for two years because my aunt lied to me, but I understand why she did it. In essence, people, at least inside North Korea, are willing to undertake those risks, perhaps even lie to their families, simply because that's how much the money means to them. Yeah, the amount of money people get paid by the state for doing jobs that they're prescribed by the state is completely ridiculous. The only way to survive 
is to do illegal things. There's all sorts of business activities going on in North Korea that aren't really allowed, but that people just engage in anyway to make ends meet. Lena, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, MoneyWise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out.